Welcome, 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 one and all, to Radio Peligrosa, special edition. We got a special guest in the house all the way from Boston, Massachusetts. I call him Wonka. Make a round of uh, Give me a round of applause. Somebody. So Wonka and I go way back. Way back. I mean, this is like before grad school. <laughs> yeah, so maybe like 2009, 2010 or so. Um, and at this point, you're already, uh, well, first, before I put the cart before the horse, I'd like to mention that uh, this is in coordination, uh, this little discussion we're going to be having today about cumbia, all things cumbia, cumbia from Colombia, cumbia from Monterrey and northeastern Mexico. Um, I think uh, I think I had said uh from the tropicalization of cumbia to the cumbiafication of everything else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it is in part a project supported by the Cultural Arts Division of the City of Austin Economic Development Department. Give uh, it up for the City of Austin. Give it up for the City of Austin, supporting lowly old peligrosa in our um, festive endeavors. So, Juanca. Welcome to Texas. Gracias. It's good to, it feels like home. You just got in and boy, are your arms tired. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us a little bit about um, you. Oh man, where to start? Um, Yeah, so I was born in Bogota. Bam, let's start there. That's a good place to start. (laughs) Um, And uh, grew up in the Boston area. at some point, I got involved with a PBS documentary about Latin music called Latin Music USA. It's out there. You should watch it. It's still really good. Ten years later. Um, and that got me into doing music research. Uh, and that got me to the UT Austin grad program in ethnomusicology. Um, focusing on cumbia. I did my research on cumbia. Um, what, what what year did this start? I started the program in 2010. Okay. Yeah, and I was in Austin a year prior to that. Um, and that's around the time that we met. Uh, I remember one of the things that I was really curious about was uh, gaita music, which is one style of cumbia, one traditional style of cumbia played with these indigenous flutes. And I went to Colombia and I got some flutes and I came back um, and I had these flutes and nobody was more interested in them than, than Orion. Uh, you and Kiko, our friend Kiko Yamisar were like, what are those? Teach us what to do with them. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's kind of the, mm-hmm. really the beginning of our friendship, the beginning of my research. Um, yeah, I think from there, anytime I would see you even if it was at a Perigosa and I was supposed to be doing other work, we would get into conversations. Long, late-night <laughs> conversations about all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Where the stuff comes from, who's doing it, who's, I mean, like, runs a gamut. Yeah. I mean, that, I, I think that that's, like, I've always been interested in that as well and, like, having those conversations, you know, based on the, you know, like ethnomusicology, um, mindset just like opens up 
everything for interpretation. And I always appreciate you uh, lending an ear for that. Yeah, I yeah, know it's uh, clearly something I uh, I enjoy. Um, it's uh, I think ethnomusicology, which is just a fancy word for saying like a way of studying music in culture, as opposed to like music on paper or. Um, yeah, ethnomusicology lends a really valuable ear to thinking about music, not just as uh, something that, you know, we uh, have on our phones and listen to, uh, but something that really creates culture, that it creates our lived experience and comes from our lived experience. Mm-hmm. So, um, started out just generalized... Um ethnomusicology interests and then what kind of led you down the path to um get involved with cumbia yeah so um back in 2010 which is not that long ago believe it or not there had not been a published book about the history of cumbia uh um There was one thing in the works in Spanish, nothing in English, articles here or there. Um, And we could talk about what I mean by cumbia in that in that sense. But um, it just felt like an area that there was just a big blind spot in the ethnomusicology literature. Um, So it was of great interest to me. And of course, one of the things that you're supposed to do in grad school is find big blind spots and try to fill them. So it was a good alignment of my personal interests and um, something that I felt was going to be, you know, kind of a, a cool avenue of research. And then I found out that I was just like way in over my head, that there's just so much to do. Um, and uh, yeah, I'd rather than kind of focusing on one little thing, I kind of like tried to swallow it whole and it, it swallowed me because it's, <laughs> it's so big and one of the reasons we would get into these long long conversations is because you can look at so many different sides of this uh, in so many different places and it has so many cool connections um that uh many of which are you know are still haven't really been researched super thoroughly so for all uh, the budding ethnomusicologists out there there's still a ton of great research to do um, and, um, yeah. Tell us how you kind of got involved with the cumbia in Colombia. Sure. How that um, honed in. Yeah. So d- just a, a little, a little bit of background, right? So cumbia is, is one of many types of Afro-Colombian music styles, uh, from the Caribbean coast of Colombia. Um, so it shares a lot with, um, a lot of other Cuban music and, and uh, you know, other Afro-Caribbean uh, music styles in that it is taking elements of African musical traditions that get hybridized with uh, native music traditions that get hybridized through the colonial process with European musical traditions. And um, they all kind of get, uh, basically all of the, all of the styles that we think of merengue, bachata, son, they all kind of go through this process in the early part of the 20th century at the dawn of the recording era. That's like another thing that all these styles have in common is that when they get recorded, they have really interesting relationships with 
helping create a sense of of place and of nation of like where those musics come from. So that's when merengue becomes like the defining Dominican music style. Uh, that is when like bomba and plena become really like the defining Puerto Rican music styles. That's when cumbia. Uh, well, we'll get into cumbia, uh, but um, in, in similar ways as that's kind of the time when jazz and ragtime start becoming kind of the the American, you know, the U.S. Uh, music. So um, the recording industry and and um, has a huge part to play in in all these sort of Afro-Caribbean, and I think of jazz as kind of Afro-Caribbean in a broader sense um, forms. Um, Specifically with cumbia, um, it it was a rural music that um, the musicians, you know, um, were playing in their like small villages. But at the dawn of the recording era, people heard it. They wanted to record it. Um, those traditional musicians weren't the first to record it because they didn't have access to recording studios. The first people who recorded it were outsiders some of them were colombian but they weren't from these small villages some of them weren't even colombian um and, and so the earliest versions of cumbia that, that we have are uh just like the earliest versions of jazz uh they're not what was the most traditional thing that was happening in these rural villages it's what uh, more urban um listeners and musicians kind of reinterpret um and uh, yeah, that's a process that begins to happen in Colombia, maybe through the 30s and 40s. And by the 40s, you have uh, a real sense of something that is called cumbia, that it's distinct, that it kind of stands on its own. Um, and um, it, it takes the country by storm. Prior to that, um, Colombia had thought of itself as uh, an Andean country, right? And from the Andes, uh, from the mountains, that's where Bogota, the capital is, um, where a lot of the other big cities in the country are. And cumbia becomes a, a, a music style that really helps, I think, change the, the um, perspective of what Colombia is into to being a nation that is has a Caribbean coast, has a black population, has all these ties with um, the Caribbean and therefore the rest of the world. Um, Cumbia is a big part in, in creating that that um, identity, um, which we see today in Carlos Vives and J Balvin. Like mm -hmm. <laughs> to some extent, the yeah. sense that those artists represent something that's Colombian, mm -hmm. that all kind of goes back to that moment. Interesting. Um, so, I mean, I don't, I don't want to necessarily, uh, go further back, but my understanding is that the, um, first kind of iteration of cumbia is, um, African drums and, and these flutes that were already present in Colombia back to the Gaitas. Um, at what point? Did the flutes become the accordion? Yeah. Um, yeah, so it started out as kind of a, a percussion and voice tradition. And um, there are actually different kinds of flutes that got kind of paired with it, not just gaitas, but other other kinds of instruments. But um, 
the accordion comes in um, in the 1950s. Okay. Um, and we actually have, we think, kind of reliable information about how that happens. Um, there's a small town called San Jacinto, which became really popular in the history of Cumbia because the Gaita group from San Jacinto, yeah. Los Gaiteros de San Jacinto, are really the first people to the first group to, to popularize gaita music outside of the region they go on tour in the 1950s in colombia and that's the first time anybody had really like heard gaitas and it blew people's minds um same so in in san jacinto um there was all there were other musical traditions it wasn't just gaita and there were other musical traditions nearby and you um there's a famous accordion player from San Jacinto, Andres Landero, who uh, adapts a lot of gaita music on accordion. It's it's stylized. Obviously, the accordion is a totally different instrument. There are accordions in the region dating back to the um, early 20th century playing other styles of music. But um, in, in San Jacinto... He, Andres Tandero takes the accordion and he does something that had never really been done with it. He plays cumbia um, and is really successful at it. Like very quickly, he's very young when he started doing this, very quickly gets recording contracts, starts touring and, and really creates accordion cumbia um, more or less single-handedly, which is amazing. And he's still the figure that in Colombia, in Mexico, in England, people point to as like, this is like the source. Um, yeah, he died in 2000, so uh, left a huge body of, of recorded music and, and disciples. Um, how does, um, we were discussing earlier, um, the concert in uh, Bogota by Fito? Not Fito, uh, Lucho Bermudez. Lu Lucho Bermudez. What role does that play in, in spreading cumbia throughout Colombia. Uh, huge, right? So Lucho Bermudez is this, uh, people call him like the Benny Goodman of, of Colombia. He's this, you know, fairly light-skinned uh, from the coast, but fairly light-skinned, uh, we would say white or white passing, uh, clarinet player. Uh, uh, formerly schooled in, in clarinet, uh, but he gets this wild idea, I think, because he's listening to jazz music from the U.S. and other things that are going on around him. He gets this wild idea. Rather than playing symphonic clarinet, he's going to adapt this gaita music that is from, like, you know, the town near his home. And he's going to arrange this stuff for for, for essentially like a, like a jazz band. Um and so, yeah, starting in the 40s, he has this little jazz band. There were other jazz bands, you know, modeled after the American jazz band, um, really uh, what we would call tropical bands that would play a huge array of different kinds of, of tropical dance music for, for audiences, often in like hotels. It's often the context that I read about them. They would be playing in some fancy hotel for... Colombian or European tourists, right. you know, and you can imagine them in suits on the bandstand. Playing Beatles. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Tropical Beatles. Uh, but um, that music was, was 
uh, still local in the sense that it really was only in these hotels and these Caribbean cities. It, it didn't really have much play outside of that. Um, uh, at least the, the Gumbia, right? Um, until Lucho Bermudez made these arrangements uh, of these songs that, that clearly weren't Cuban, weren't American, U.S. American. Um, and uh, he had something that was uniquely Colombian, but also kind of modern in the sense that it was dressed up and, um, you know, dialogue with jazz. This is what made it available to the elite. What, right. what so made it like a, like a, a feeling of national pride. You're, here's this music from rural Colombia, Cumbia, that you're not really into until this guy comes and uh, orchestrates it. Basically, yeah. And, and he takes his band and he plays a concert in Bogota. He plays, like, you know, he like a concert series. He was there for like a month. Mm -hmm. And think of like, uh, it was like the it club in Bogota for that month. Like everybody had to go see him. And he went back to the coast and there was so much demand that he had to come back to Bogota. Um, he was like the hottest thing in Bogota in 1947 was going to see Lucho Bermudez. And I think that opened up the eyes of, of uh, you know, a lot of newspaper writers and other folks who were like, oh, my God, this is something that exists in Colombia that's super modern and super cool. Um, but it's still like very Colombian. And so, again, all of a sudden that turns people's attention from the Andean music that everybody thought was like the music of the nation to this new dance thing that every and yeah there, there's there's politics there about race right this is clearly like afro-colombian music even though it's not talked about in that way by many people there are a few um afro-colombian writers who are very like they plant the flag and they say this is ours but most people just think want to claim it as national music um and there's also like a politics about the body this is like sexy dance music you know whatever that means in 1947 but we still recognize that today in music styles that we like push the social mores of how people are supposed to behave on dance floors. Exactly. So for 1947, this is happening in, in Bogota. Right. And this is before um, Discos Fuentes moves from the Atlantic coast, from the Caribbean coast to Medellin. Um, but, the, but there's also something happening in Mexico around this time? Yeah, so it's it's easy to focus on kind of what's going on nationally. But um, again, all these things are kind of in a transnational dialogue um, through, uh, I think, a few things. Through these, these bands uh, do tour. Um, so Lucho Bermudez, when they were after they became really famous... They weren't just playing in Bogota, they were playing in Caracas, they were playing in Panama, they were playing in Cuba, so that they, they would tour. Um, and, you know, wherever they went, they would leave a little something of the stuff that they were doing and pick up new things of what was going on there. Um, um, and including Mexico. I mean, Lucho Bermudez, I'm pretty sure, went to, went to played in Mexico City. I'm not 100% sure that he played in Monterrey, but I wouldn't be surprised um i know he came and recorded in new york at some point probably a little bit later but um so yeah touring bands um the other thing is uh recording so these bands would record and and their records would get pretty broad circulation um and uh part of that um is also the the film industry i mean a lot of these bands and you see it in especially old mexican movies right mexico was this hub 
of of Latin American cinema, and and you look at these um, Mexican movies from the you know 40s through the 60s, and inevitably all of these movies have scenes where there's a band playing and there's a dance sequence. Um, and oftentimes those were, those were like the it bands of the day. They weren't just like random actors play acting. Those were the bands. Um, so th there's a visual and audio component that people go to the cinema and they see this and it's, you know, I think really impactful for people who, I mean, if it was impactful for people to see Lucho Bermudez in Bogota, imagine what it would have been like to see Lucho Bermudez in like, I don't know. Montevideo or Buenos Aires or Monterrey, like it's like, oh wow, this is this is like really cool stuff that's happening far away from here. Yeah, I mean, and and, and there is some um, in the essay we were discussing earlier how uh, the cinema played a big role in Cumbia arriving in Monterrey. Yeah, and um, and again, cumbia is not exceptional in that way. It's a big way that I think a lot of music styles get to other places in in Latin America is uh, through these large media flows, and 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 Mexico is at the center of that for Latin America from the you know the 30s, especially the 40s onward. I mean, it's like the golden age of Mexican cinema. And it sets up the pattern for Mexico becoming the regional, in the sense of Latin America, the regional media powerhouse. We still see that to some extent to this day, right? Telemundo and Televisa aren't just kind of regional channels. They are big transnational Latin American media conglomerates based in Mexico. Awesome. So, so the cumbia, so in the cumbia, and starts percolating throughout Me Mexico. Yep. In the fifties and and other parts of Latin America too, right? In yes. Buenos Aires and absolutely. Yeah, but we're going to talk about Mexico. We're, we're talking. Yes, it's not exclusive to Mexico. Thank you for pointing that out. But yeah, so so it starts percolating, and when do we first see it in in Mexico? And do we have any information? as to where and how it started developing stronger. Yeah, this is this is one of those areas where there's there's still a ton of cool research to be done. The late 40s early 50s historically speaking isn't that long ago. There were I'm sure there are interesting records out there to to look up that to my knowledge there hasn't been really extensive research done on this. But a few flashpoints that we do know um, so by 1950, 1951 or so, there are Mexican artists recording cumbias in Mexico. Uh, cumbia songs that we think of today as being Colombian cumbia songs because they were also recorded by Colombian artists in Colombia. But, um, yeah. We're talking like Aniceto Molina. Even, even before Aniceto Molina, okay. you, you have um, um, probably music that um, would be like a Lucho Bermudez style of song, Navidad mm -hmm. Negra or... Yeah, La Pava Congona or something. Uh, again, even before all the accordion stuff, okay. it's it's early cumbia that um, Mexican artists are, you know, we would call it today, they are covering it. Right. <laughs> they are doing their own version of it. Um, and it's 
regionally popular. Their version of this song is is regionally popular. Um, uh, and uh, La Mucura, La Pollera Colorada, these are old traditional, um, I shouldn't say traditional because they are, the whole reason that people know about them in Mexico is because they're mm. recorded. Right. So, but they're, they're old songs in the cumbia canon. They're part of like what sets up cumbia for this transnational expansion. Mm -hmm. And basically from the moment they arrive in Mexico, um, they're being reproduced. They're being reimagined. They're being, uh, and those early reproductions uh, aren't, you know, they don't sound radically, radically different, mm -hmm. but um, yeah, they, they, you can tell they are, they are not Colombian. <laughs> Is that where we would start the kind of tropicalization? Yeah. Of, yeah. of the cumbias coming from Colombia? Yeah, yeah. so um, the, the idea that cumbia gets either that cumbia gets tropicalized or that cumbia is part of a tropicalization mm -hmm. of say conjunto uh, or something right of yeah. other styles of music or of a region or of a kind of a cultural industry um is to me is super super interesting first of all because i do think there's some of that going on in colombia uh it's in some ways even more interesting in mexico because there are already all these other styles of music that are mexican mm -hmm. <laughs> um, um corridos right corridos rancheras um polka right mm -hmm. um styles of music that have a long history in in northern mexico and southern texas right kind of in this border region mm -hmm. um and and so there's already a local music there's already a local music industry right. and uh what happens when cumbia arrives is that i think it provides um uh an avenue for taking um existing ensembles, existing formats, and doing something new with them that connects this region with the Caribbean, connects this region with Colombia, connects this region with, uh, in the same way that people in Bogota would have wanted to feel connected to the Caribbean because it's, you know, this right. uh, cool, uh, Current, sexy, new, newly, yeah. newly found um, charm, if you will. Uh, yeah, and that's an interesting parallel because that parallel repeats itself over and over. I think in a lot of ways, went from the going from rural to main city to the cumbia and how it got to Mexico. Um, just having this aura of we're the ones allowed to reinterpret corridos because uh, we're interested in cumbia and, cum and part of the cumbia is not necessarily only that specific style but the process of you know that process is tropicalizing quote unquote right there are other processes for other things and i think they they were kind of holding on to that as as the identifier yeah, and you, and you have artists like Beto Villa, right, who is the father of the Orquesta Tejana, um, who you look at their catalog and it's, um, you know, it's like polkas uh, and, and corridos. And then every now and then there's a bolero, which I think also kind of features in this tropicalization. The bolero was a, 
style of, of Cuban music that actually really became most popular in Mexico or through the Mexican recording industry. A lot of people actually think boleros are, are Mexican. Uh, it's a style that started in Cuba, but, you know, this romantic ballad. This, um, um, and, and cumbia is kind of another face of that. It's, it's the dancing, uh, lively yeah. version Absolutely. of that. Yeah. And so you have Beto Villa, who, again, with his conjunto tejano, which is, you know, uh, saxophone and bajo sexto or upright bass, um, they are uh, doing this this really broad array of of northern Mexican, southern Texas regional styles, but they're also really really comfortable doing cumbia. They're really comfortable doing bolero. They're really comfortable doing these other styles that are getting their their audiences dancing. I I think it's important to know also that that's happening uh, at this era in the like 60s on both sides of the border yeah yeah absolutely yeah uh, they, that's they may be called different things but there's a similar process happening on both sides and the differences there's probably just as many differences there are similarities economic differences on the different side of the border kind of leads um conjunto down one path and and tejano music down another path um yeah right and often those two um whether you think of conjuntos being the Mexican version and Tejano's being the Texas version, or whether you think of both of them, of there being something that's conjunto, that's accordion-based, and something that's orquesta, that is not accordion-based, right. um, th those usually get divided as as class. Right, absolutely. You know, th there's a high class and a lower class mm -hmm. version of basically the same styles right. of music. And again, th th this class delimination is the orchestral stuff is 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 provided Always to the, you for the elite. Always the higher class stuff right. played in ballrooms where people have to go in their suits. And, you know, you see photos from the era and people look super happy and they're all dressed up. And I think there there's a sense that they, they feel like they're really participating with um the same thing that's going on in kind of uh, American big band music and you see it also in Cuba and you see it also in Bogota and you see it also in Europe, right? There's this, this sense that like, this is, um, the allowed dance music for, uh, middle-class upwardly mobile middle-class middle and to some extent also lower middle-class folks who, who want to be upwardly mobile. Right. Exactly. Um, and then there's this other, like, very much music that's more rooted in rural traditions that is being played in, like, beer halls and right. uh, slightly lower class uh, spaces. Um, so, I mean, th this is the, the accordion, bajo sexto, everything's going on. Sometimes not even accordion, right? Accordion, sometimes, yeah. accordion sometimes makes a difference whether right, something right, right. gets thought of as conjunto or orquesta. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, the accordion becomes a more prominent part of yeah, this. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's also an interesting point because, like, the access to uh, technology, it, it plays a big role, not only class, you know what I'm saying? Um, Kiko's in the building. What's up, Kiko? Oh, Kiko has something to add about this. Come on, come on in the podcast, Kiko. I'm just going to interrupt y'all. I think one big key difference between what's called just Tejano and what's called Conjunto Tejano. Uh, well, there's Conjunto Norteño and there's Conjunto Tejano, which are the same 
amalgamation of instruments, so bajo sexo and accordion alone, or then you add more stuff to make it a bigger stage show. But but um, so the way I see the difference would be like Norteño, Conjunto Norteño. It's polkas, it's the same song sometimes, but it's like the Norteño guy ends it, and the Chicano guy has like low rider in him and a little <laughs> bit of like African-American culture seeped in in, in, in R&B and kind of like, um, and so so his conjunto accordion line is you know what I mean? Like like that's like a Steve Jordan like yeah. end of a polka, you know what I mean? Uh, but then Tejano music, uh, it goes beyond because like it gets more fancy with the lines, the accordion in Conjunto Tejano versus Conjunto Norteño. But when you get the Tejano with first the big brass and then the keyboardy stuff in the 80s, the chord progressions are chord progressions of smooth jazz. Yeah. And it's not just one, four, five polkas anymore. It's still a fox beat making it a polka, technically, rhythmically. But the progressions tend to get like like turn into like what like what Dave Cos would do on a saxophone in the 80s or like you know like like a R&B or jazz kind of progressions to to make the arrangements more like you said classy or whatever right and i think that the, sorry the, i needed it no that's added that. uh thank you for that and um i think one of the things that that um Kiko mentioned there is i mean and you're talking about Tejano like forward in time through like the 80s and we we see that through like the 80s and 90s the ways in which um it's music that wants to tell its audience that it's in dialogue with jazz <laughs> uh, it's very explicit right and it's the same thing with like the the keyboards it's music that wants to tell its audience that it's in dialogue with all this other popular music that's using keyboards at the time um so there are these these markers that um whether it's the particular instrument you use um, that really kind of show aim to show these dialogues, and by that same token, if you and we recognize this in kind of U.S. culture, if you put the accordion in, even if it's playing the exact same chords or whatever, just the presence of the accordion automatically kind of changes the way we think about that music, right? There are all these kind of I think really terrible jokes about <laughs> accordions in in in, uh, in popular music, um, but um, what that should tell us is that we know intuitively that the presence of the accordion has a class signifier, um, and it's very much present uh, at this moment. You know, in the fifties and sixties, where having a cumbia played on accordion is a totally different story than having a cumbia. That's played on saxophone. So is this like played out in the Conjunto Tejano and Conjunto Norteña? Is what played out? The class thing? Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think the fact that these different styles exist, I think, is, is because of those class differences. Um, all of those participate in this moment of tropicalization, right? We see all of these different styles, which are all related, obviously. Um, we see all of them wanting to dialogue with whatever, you know, the, the tropics or this idea of the tropical, um, which um, I think, you know, again, is, is, is the sense of, of 
connecting to the modern um, in a way that um, necessarily, again, has a sort of racial and body and gendered politics. But beyond that is also just, I think, a way for um, these styles of music to become, um, to open up in the sense that they're not just local, right? They're in dialogue with these bigger trends. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like, there's almost a conversation happening across a, a, a multitude of uh, variables, whether it's geography or economies or whatever. And Cumbia is a really, really good vehicle for that, right? I think an, an interesting question to ask is why does that happen with Cumbia? I mean, it happens with Bolero too, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. So it's not like it only happens with Cumbia. But why does Cumbia become the the pattern the vehicle that really moves into all these spaces uh and allows these mexican uh ensembles and and styles to dialogue with the caribbean why isn't it merengue you know why don't you hear uh and it's a good question because the dominican republic and merengue specifically has a long history of accordion music absolutely so why isn't that the the vehicle for it Mm -hmm. um and uh, I'm not sure that there are like super clear answers to that. I mean, some of it is that there already was from very early on, from the 40s, right. uh, early 50s, this uh, actual exchange of, of bands traveling and, and records. Um, and um, the f- immediately there were these kind of connections established right. between Mexico and Colombia. Right. Los Corraleros de Mayagual, for example, came and spent time in northern Mexico and and did U.S. stuff and stayed in Mexico. Corraleros de Mayagual are, I think, another kind of Lucho Bermudez, often in like the the telling of the narrative of Cumbia in Colombia. It's like Lucho Bermudez. And Mm. then uh, Andres Landero is the, the guy who kind of brings the accordion into the picture. And the Corraleros de Mahagual are the next, like, really important group. Um, they are a super group. You know, we would think of them as a super group today. Uh, yeah, they were. Up to this point, it's like musicians kind of being the transmitters and receivers of this information, correct? Right. And. And what happens with Corraleros de Mahagual is uh, there's, a, by this point, a very successful record label in Colombia that wants wants to capitalize on all the commercial success that all these different trends have been having. And so they bring in the best accordion player, uh, the best uh, euphonium player, because the euphonium is actually a really central instrument in some of these traditions. The, they bring in uh, percussionists, upright bass players, that, you know, all these different things that hadn't really been on record together mm-hmm. and they bring them all together and they're incredibly successful incredibly successful in Colombia incredibly successful pretty much everywhere else and they tour mm-hmm. they spent time in Mexico they spent time in the US uh, they spent time in Europe um, and uh, that is I think the sound that really becomes the the template for um what we think of today as like Mexican cumbia, right? It's, it's this very um, cowbell on every beat, mm-hmm. the bass going like boom, 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 <laughs> or boom, 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 boom. Th- those elements didn't really exist prior to the Corraleros and certainly not all in one place. 
Um, so yeah, they are an absolutely crucial group, and um, I think they are a good example of how this stuff um, plants itself in 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 Mexico, and um, then of course Mexican artists reinterpret and dialogue with it in all sorts of other cool, interesting. Essentially, like creating direct access in Mexico to the Colombian stuff. Here is Corraderos, uh, also Aniceto, um, and then Beto is kind of on the Mexican side playing the role for Mexico. Yeah, and Beto Villa, um, again, he started doing this earlier. He'd been around the, in the 50s doing Orquesta Tejana, and he just kind of adopts some of this stuff, and you okay, begin okay. to hear it in his in his band. Um, um but I think coming out of, like, not once you're in the 60s, the sound that you begin to hear is, in some ways, much more polished, much more processed. Because mm-hmm. um, now they're in the bigger studios. This is, uh, Disco Fuentes already moved to the bigger city. By this point, Disco Fuentes is in Medellin. Um, uh, RCA Victor, we're, we're seeing subsidiaries of U.S. labels in Mexico. Um so, so like this this whole cumbia style is kind of moving from you know the small labels and and DJs pushing the stuff to now bigger labels and bigger radio and and um they, and then, and then we're here where we like seventies eighties where kind of Ceso Pina um, comes in the in the picture. Yeah, there's there's a few, and I think this is the point. Really, the '60s are the point when Mexico takes this in totally new directions that had not happened at all in Colombia. That's when, like, I think there's uh, uh, the birth of a totally Mexican cumbia, um, and it, it, you know, you have um, even before Celso Piña, um, you have. Uh, Ramon Ayala, who's again, you know, does corridos and, and a bunch of other stuff, but he also is bringing in cumbia. You have Valerio Longoria. Uh, Rigo Tovar is is part of a, a slightly different uh, trend, which really kind of comes out of the '60s. This this grupero, this, uh, these sort of small combos, um, getting away from the accordion and doing kind of these electrified electric guitar keyboard things but yeah by the time like between 1965 where it's kind of the corralero sound is dominant and 1975 by the time um rico tovar and the sort of grupero onda grupera thing is like really solid those 10 years the the like the range of things that happens in mexico just like explodes um you have stuff that's really and fractures in a way, right? You have stuff that's really accordion centric. Um, you have stuff that's really band centric without accordion. You have um, stuff like Miki Laude, uh, who is out of uh, Miki Laude is actually from, I think he's from Guadalajara. He's from the uh, Western Mexico, but he's based in in uh, DF, if I'm not mistaken, and he's doing like. So surf rock cumbia like on guitar it's it's um really early and again these are just musicians in mexico reinterpreting um things that they've heard colombian artists do and and then just bringing it in a totally different direction which leads us to i guess uh selena (laughs) yeah um 
one question to ask is like, why are Tejano groups playing cumbia at all? You right. could ask that. Mm -hmm. um, but but I think a, a, like a more at the time, if you ask that question, most people would say, why wouldn't Tejano groups be playing cumbia? It had been around for decades at that point. Um, I have an answer for that. That's also, I have an answer for that. That's subjective in my opinion and what I gather from observation. But it's also the answer to the question you had early, like what makes cumbia and not merengue be the one that catches everybody from Patagonia up to northern Mexico? It catches everybody. It's unlike a lot of musics. Tango is South America more. Uh, group like Banda is Mexico and like Central America. And you never, almost never catch a music that ca everybody did. And I think cumbia Ha, uh, and the reason Tejano or anybody plays it and it, it and it goes into all and it becomes one of the rhythms that they play just like in the Caribbean cumbia is one of the rhythms that those groups play is because cumbia is like the reggae for Spanish speakers <laughs> because of the one drop uh, and because it's the most accessible rhythm for everybody to understand how to dance to whereas merengue it's like man there's only one speed and it's right and, and it's cumbia it's like for everybody old people can do it uh and salsa is like a complicated thing to people to so some people yeah. and like um if it's too deep and then polka's all the way to the other side right but cumbia is like right in the middle where you could th still throw your hip a little but if you but if you're but if you're like a polka dancer you can still understand it as as, as opposed to a bachata where you got to like twist your pelvis like cantinflas just so you know what i mean it's <laughs> like um so i think that cumbia just like reggae is the base for pop in the whole world because it's really easy for everybody to understand how to yeah. dance to it yeah and and that's i think that's i think that's largely accurate uh, and it has the and it has the elements balanced like no other music of black people, red people, and white people, like super balanced compared to a, a lot of other things that are either really black or like polka's German, or like you know and it doesn't have any African in it, or or things that are like candombe is just African and there's no other things in it, or you know uh, even like. Um, Pacific Colombian music or something that's just bullerengue is like just like straight up black it doesn't catch everybody's because it has it like it has the flutes have the element of the pentatonic thing and native stuff or it's Dorian but you know what I mean and and and, and uh, so it has elements I think of everybody can understand it because it has elements of everybody yeah I mean I think that and I think that's that's an important point that for, for whatever the reasons cumbia does speak to a really broad base of people an incredibly broad base of people um, and, and I think yeah the, the reasons Kiko that you mentioned um, it's it is uh, fairly it, it balances these two ten, musically speaking this is the like the nerdy ethnomusicologist I mean speaking the looking more at the actual music. It balances something that is very uh, downbeat, uh, heavy, and you hear like the Mexican cumbia really begins to point this out, having that cowbell on every beat. Um, and Mexicans aren't the first to do it, but but like that becomes a really prominent feature. Um, 
Um, so something that really marks the downbeat and is very easy to dance to because you can't uh, you can't mess up, you know. Um, with uh, it balances that with something that is actually maintains a certain amount of syncopation, <laughs> um, and um, it doesn't. Um, um, it's still, you know, whether you think of it as something that just makes your hips move, but it leaves room for a certain kind of interpretation that um, both in terms of rhythm and in terms of harmony um, that you, um, I mean, you could do in other styles of music, but Cumbia really lends itself super, super well to that. Um, there's there's other additional kind of cool elements about Cumbia. One, it's... it's um, by the time Cumbia gets to, to Bogota, it's already undergone all these crazy transformations, right? It was Correct. it was African music and then African music with, with these indigenous flutes. Uh, and then it was like um, they added words to it in Spanish. And then it was like orchestrated for big band. Um, so uh, even by the time that like it's first really heard in Mexico or in Buenos Aires, it's gone through all these transformations. And it's it's music that can be really easily transformed, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and re and retain a sense of like what it is. Uh, um, so one of the things that people point to is as uh, really being um, one of the the major changes that happens with with uh, the very first cumbia that people can really sort of point to as being Mexican cumbia. Um, talking about like the '60s, um, it's it's a lot slower than than Colombian cumbia. So you could slow it down and it's still cumbia. You can't really do that with a ton of other Latin American dance music um, and still have it be part of that. You know, if you slow down... Um, yeah, or if you slow down salsa, like it, at some point it just becomes kind of bolero-ish. Uh, if you slow down merengue, it uh, at some point it sort of becomes bachata-ish. Um, but cumbia is like cumbia throughout. You play it slow, you play it fast. Like um, it, it, it retains its in, its musical integrity in kind of cool ways at different tempos, with different instruments, with different chord progressions behind it, and you kind of dance to it more or less the same way. Regardless, you just maybe you just have to move your feet faster or whatever. But there's not a specific dance that you have to do, and which if you, you know, if you have to do it at 130 beats per minute, your, you know, your feet would fall off. There's no sound more fun than. <laughs> yeah, there was a cool, um, interesting. Uh, I think Vox, one of these online. Um, media companies uh, they had the series where they had somebody travel around and they had this guy who was traveling around Colombia and he does an episode on cumbia and uh, they like try to break down the key elements of cumbia so one it's the right that's like if you hear that it's cumbia then the other thing is that sort of backbeat accent so it's boom 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 and so if that's if that's what defines your music style there is so much room to play with. There is so much room to play with. Um, whereas you talk about like what defines salsa or what defines merengue, you have so many elements that begin to define that that it really restricts what you can do with these other things. So yeah, cumbia, it, it obviously depends on how you think about it, how you define it. But um, 
I think that's one of the things that a lot of these artists in Mexico and in the U.S. and in Europe, you know, it gives you a space to play, to experiment um, in a way that's um, you're not violating. I mean, cumbia elders might tell you that you're violating and that what you're doing isn't cumbia. And I've been told that and I've heard that from people. But um, um, I think there's space there to have those conversations. Absolutely. Yep. You just reminded me of something. Um, we were discussing kind of the the cumbiafication of everything else. In the <laughs> How kinda, do we get to today? Yeah. <laughs> kind of the antithesis of what cumbia has done. I feel like now what we're doing is cumbiafying everything else with you could take something as simple as or dong 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 llamador and put it on a hip hop beat and you've cumbiafied it. <laughs> yeah. There's 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 something really and obviously you'll be able to speak a lot more to this as a producer, but once once you have the tools to sort of deploy these musical elements basically into any other recording, um the uh, you have this lens of like then looking or like hearing all this sound being like, how would this work as a cumbia? Um, how, and uh, obviously as a producer, you, you, you know, you have a lens to it, but obviously there's a lot of other uh, musicians who have tried to reinterpret all sorts of other things as cumbias, whether it's, you know, and, and I think that that became kind of one of the things that, Texas and Austin and and it was part of this moment really I probably beginning in like the 90s where it's like how how many places could you put cumbia and not I talk with uh, Brian Ramos who will be on the the next podcast and and he was actually telling me stories of um, his experience in the 80s and his bands in the 80s and how he was um, down in McAllen in the border going across the border often and hearing these cumbias over there and then and him and his friends coming from a rock standpoint and then just kind of all slowly starting to integrate and develop uh their own sound so yeah the cumbification the, the cumbification of rock, of rock essentially <laughs> is is how that started um which you, which you should talk to him about because there's some interesting parallels um going all the way back Texas chicha. Exactly. Or Argentinian, you know, which is like American rap or other rap that it reinterprets. Well, okay, so it's, it's right, it's Peligrosa, Mexican Independence Day. I, right. I want to kind of bring back the focus to, to Mexico uh, and Monterrey in particular uh, because I, I think there's still like a lot of people and, and I... You know, not to like put anybody else down, but th- there is a conversation out there of like, is is cumbia Mexican? Question mark, legitimate question. And and I mean, one answer is like, no, it started in Colombia. <laughs> but um, I think another answer is a lot of the really cool stuff that happened with cumbia, at least from an audience in the U.S. and I think for a Latino audience, Latinx audience. Um, is that a lot of that is born in Mexico and I, and I think is born through these processes that that 
have a lot to do with with the border, that have a lot to do with the relationship between, you know, kind of big media uh, centers along the border, whether it's, you know, this sort of like narco wave, uh, Mexican Institute of Sound, West Coast thing that happens between LA and Tijuana, or whether it's like Monterrey and Houston and San Antonio and this sort of Texas-based dialogue around the border that that Cumbia participates that and it gives people a place to experiment with just like we were talking about experimenting musically to kind of experiment with local identities and local identities that both align with existing cultural practices but also kind of push against them and I think that the, the kind of the Colombianos de Monterrey phenomenon is is fascinating because it's it's kind of unclear if it's like pushing against something. It's pushing against the existing culture by doing something that is authentic from another place. <laughs> um, and that is such a cool inversion of, of I think, the, the power roles of saying, okay, well, we are going to adopt a style of music that is, that is not from here. Uh, we recognize it's not from here. We named it after the fact that it's not from here, but we are going to do it so well and so faithfully that it'll become our way of pushing back against what we're hearing in the radio, the sort of like, you know, hybrid pop stuff that we're hearing in the radio. We're going to push back with like the roots. That is such a punk move. I mean, like that's such a, like a, um, and yeah, I'm not surprised that cumbia is like the thing at hand for these young kids to, to say like, you know, we grew up with this Grupero stuff. We grew up with Ramon Ayala. Um, but no, we want to we want to we want to be just like Aniceto Molina. We want to be just like Andres Landero. You know, we want to like throw back to not just a generation ago, but we want to throw back to a generation, two generations ago. And like two thousand miles away. <laughs> why does that? Why? Why does it play a role for such a long time? Like, why do those musics stick around? Yeah. Um. Yeah. I, what do you think are some of the factors? I. I mean, I, the 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 root stuff had always been there, and of course, once we're in the kind of the recorded era, it's. People had those that physical records. I'm sure parents had those physical records, um, and uh, I, I think it maybe it was some of it was that it um, there were there have been these moments in in U.S. Uh, popular culture um, um, where artists have um, th- think of rock, right? Right, rock, rock, kind of re claimed a lot of um you know black southern music and reinterpreted and that really it's it's music from like the south that becomes the 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 um wellspring for for rock music um and you have you know Derek Clapton or Led Zeppelin singing muddy water songs and it's like how do you connect those two people but but there they are they're connected and one of the ways that people push back against the popularity of that is to say like Oh well, Eric Clapton is cool, but he's no Muddy Waters. 
<laughs> and so I think one of the ways that that uh, this moment in Monterrey can be thought of is like, well, Rigo Tobar is cool, but he's no Andres Landero. Um, that that there's some in the absence of having power, in the absence of having access to to media, in the absence of having absence to capital, in the absence like access to capital, um, for a group that's uh, really completely marginalized in these poor you know slums of Monterrey one way to get power is to claim authenticity <laughs> it's to claim that this is this is this is real i'm going to show you real and i'm even though it's not real from here i can still kind of call it my own <laughs> mm. um you think the rebajada thing had something to do with it being so impregnated in cholo culture um as a, do you think that the rebajada thing I don't know if it started in Mexico or in Houston because it's chopping screw. It's just like the same thing. Yeah. Do you think that has to that has to do with the impregnation of cholo culture with cumbia? Uh, the significant. I mean, yeah. what's the significance of that in, in that? Well, but uh, rebajado was definitely started in Monterrey, and uh, I met one of the guys, the DJs, uh, Duenas in Monterrey. Nudi took me to go see him. And um, when was that? this was maybe a year and a half ago or something like that. No, when, when did start? Oh, um, this is like, I want to say 70s, 80s. Uh, uh, yeah, I would say, I would say, I, I don't know for sure, right. but I would guess like early 80s. I would guess early 80s too, because um, they're already playing, they're essentially, the, he's part of a DJ crew. And... And they're playing all this Colombian stuff, these 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 Dos Fuentes records, so much so. And I was telling, Are they like Picops? similar, uh, similar, similar, similar. Yeah, right. Yeah, he, there's this sort of like transnational thing that that I, at least from what I've read, is really is born in Jamaica, the Jamaican sound system. But again, very quickly thereafter. Uh, there are sound systems in, you know, giant trucks with speakers, basically, uh, in Trinidad, in Barranquilla, in Cartagena, mm -hmm. in Mexico, right? This this idea of, like, the public sound system. A and we were talking about this earlier with Orion. That moment, you know, late 70s, early 80s, you see it in hip-hop, too, right? Mm -hmm. that, that there's a sort of making a lot of this... Um, making a lot of popular music um, trends really move some of the focus away from the performing musician to the DJ, to the selector, right? Mm -hmm. And and really making that very public. Like, right. like that happens out on the street. <laughs> right. Um, so... Where people go... People are not going to concerts at this point. They're going to clubs and all the DJs are out here spreading the, the good... Lord's word. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, we love Jesus. Uh, yeah, I actually talk about uh, Duenas in the previous podcast, so go back and listen to that. What? Yeah, yeah. T I, I mean, I, I'm like having a lot of different thoughts and ways to tie this together. Uh, talking about kind of cholo culture and and this sort of uh, cholombiano and this colombianos de Monterrey that. Uh, 
the one of the I think the points that I was making is that the marginalized group uses some cultural form um, to and again fancy uh, ethnomusicology term it, it, it in the absence of like economic capital this creates cultural capital right this creates um, uh, a way for people to to claim something that elevates their status it's not about money <laughs> um, so a lot of it is about style and we see it in other yeah right we see it in other in, in dress we see it in slang and once you create cultural capital the tendency of that cultural capital is to is to filter up <laughs> class-wise and and we recognize this process really well that there are things that happen in the underground um quote, air quotes um there are things that happen in kind of underground scenes where the kind of cultural industries aren't as powerful. And by cultural industries, I mean like recording industries and uh, actual people who have economic capital uh, of cultural work. But the, the cultural capital then tends to um, get, get cherry-picked. <laughs> um, and those are the... those things that are cherry picked bubble up and become a way for people to make economic capital. So that is true with Cumbia. That is, that is true with every popular music. We see it today. Um, every style of popular music that you hear on the radio has gone through this process. Um, so th there's nothing unique to Cumbia about that. I think what, what's uh, cool about the way that happens in Mexico is, um, that again, the the thing that's being reclaimed is is both very local, but it's completely foreign. <laughs> uh, and I think that's such a that's such a cool tension that something foreign can be made local, um, and that it can be the thing that gives you cultural capital, and that then that's the thing that gets pulled up, um, and that I think bubbles up. Um, as something that comes to really define this region in, uh, in this border region, really, in the, you know, kind of uh, into the millennium in the late 90s, early 2000s. That's, uh, Cumbia becomes kind of a new regional underground and continues to be, I think, the sort of regional underground. Um, there was a moment where I sort of felt like, and at this point we're talking like into into my teenage and early 20s. There was a moment where I sort of felt like that was what was going to happen to reggaeton, right? Reggaeton born in the streets of Puerto Rico from this weird uh, amalgam of uh, Panamanian and Jamaican music and like all these same kind of transnational webs but really kind of born in Puerto Rico um, and had this these crossover moments in the early 2000s in the US and then kind of fell dormant and it was like okay that's a classic example of something that gets pulled up and then then it just sort of disappears but here we are like 20 years later and and it, it resurfaces super powerfully as like uh, a thing that gets adopted into all these other popular music trends. This, pardon me, but this goes with my theory 
about reggae and about the accessibility to a rhythm because reggaeton does the same thing. Yeah. It's a reggae and it's like really easy to understand how to dance to it drunk in a club. <laughs> you know, like the, the, there's there's something cool and I I, I, I think, before you continue, I think the difference between the first era of reggaeton and its flop, and it flopped because the things that matriculated upwards to the people with money weren't the right things. I think the second... Uh, the, uh, the cultural capital. I think the second time uh, around with reggaeton, what we're seeing is uh, R&B and synth uh, soul and Afropop take parts of it. Yeah. And if anything, I think that shows uh, like a savviness on the part of musicians and of, of the music industry right. of like what to do with this thing, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and, and in some ways, like I feel like Cumbia has had these moments where it like bubbles up and it, like the conditions haven't been there for it to become the next giant thing and by giant thing i mean like beyonce's doing it and jay-z's doing it right, right? Yeah, uh, and, and maybe that's a good thing i don't know i don't I, judgment aside i mean i think it's just interesting to note that cumbia sort of remains there but often remain like when i think about where it remains it's kind of like just under the surface Absolutely. just under the surface yeah. um obviously like if you if you go out you're gonna hear it it's not like it's invisible right it's 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 very much present but um it it hasn't ever um, gotten this kind of like permanent boost where it's gonna all dominate of a sudden going to be the dominant thing, right? right? Um, but one thing I was reminded of is Kiko, you were mentioning about this sort of like reggae cumbia. I, I think there is something that they share, especially like the version of dancehall reggae that became reggaeton. And I would love to take credit for this, but I'm I'm pretty sure it wasn't an original idea. But I don't know whose idea it was. Um, I, you know, I spent a lot of time talking about music with like colleagues and friends when I was in grad school, and this was—I'm pretty sure this was not an original idea. <laughs> but th rhythmically, there's something cool that happens between cumbia and and reggaeton. They have very, you know, cumbia's got this, ch -ch 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 -ch, and reggaeton has this like boom, ch boom, ch boom, ch boom. Ch so cumbia is like very, relatively speaking, square. And reggaeton is, relatively speaking, very syncopated. So you have this, like, syncopated Caribbean thing that, that again, is at this balance between the, the, the downbeat and the, and the offbeat. Anyways, those two things kind of square that differently. They, they kind of reconcile how to do that differently. Um, and um, reggaeton clearly is, like, the more, the sexier version in a way it's it's the one that's more syncopated um and i'm not surprised that it's um super attractive to producers who can like oh i can just drop this beat and all of a sudden this feels very caribbean um, and caribbean in a way that i think points to not just uh, the 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 small Caribbean, but points to like this big sort of diasporic Caribbean, right? You hear things like that out of Brazil. You hear things like that out of Africa, um, and and um, yeah, and you can just take that and drop it into uh, you know drop it into yeah. you know the next Beyonce song. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, I think that I think that ties it all up uh, with the bow tie. I think um, it was awesome having you on here and discussing um, as much as we can with the time allotted. As you say said uh, t- to all the budding ethnomusicologists, there is much to learn, much to research, much to be informed about. Real quickly, is there stuff that you're working on now that you want people to know about? Uh, yeah, so career-wise, I had a giant shift away from from music research into my other giant passion, which is bicycling. Uh, I'm still trying to play uh, Colombian music and learn about kind of Colombian music traditions, and I spend a lot of time thinking about how this stuff moves around. So it's not like it's it's gone from from my blood; it's still there. Um, I, I think uh, in in terms of like um, research and stuff like I, maybe this is stuff that I'm working on, but that I would love to have the time and energy and yeah, resources yeah, to work on. Um, there are super interesting links now between, and, and I guess once you get past like 2000, once we're in kind of the digital world, all of these things that we talked about earlier where it's like, oh, the band went to Monterrey and performed or like, the, you know, this one record got pressed and somebody brought it there and they played it. You know, it just goes like exponential, right? It just blows up and and, and it's very difficult to then figure out like where and how things connect because um, all of a sudden those distances kind of disappear. Um, like when something is like, quote unquote, recorded kind of uh, like, what does it mean for something to even for a song to be recorded when it can be remixed over and over and over and over and over again? Um, So uh, one thing that I think a lot about is what is the role, like what does Cumbia do? What happens with Cumbia in that scenario? Um, And and one of the things that I um, am fascinated by is how Cumbia becomes this thread that ties all these very, very different places together um, in the Americas and beyond. Um, And global base is, you know, global base, whatever global base is, is this giant thing um, that um, isn't a single thing. It's like a million different things. But I'm like super curious about how Cumbia continues to be a big a big thread through that and, and continues to be this sort of like music that is very malleable, allows it to like point to itself, but to point to other places. Um, Colombia's always in there. Mexico's always in there, but like, that's not the end, right? It, no, it, absolutely it, not. It, who, I mean, in a, in a way, um, Peligrosa has used cumbia to identify ourselves in the same way that it's been used before. So that they, it continues. I think, Maybe in some regards, some of the stuff stays stagnant and stays in the past. But I think uh, in a lot of other ways, it moves forward in kind of the natural way that it always has. And maybe, uh, you know, I I would go as far as to say as I don't think it'll ever be like reggaeton or any of these super popular mainstays. But it will remain a mainstay. Um because of its, maybe maybe because 
before it got to Bogota, it had already gone through these permutations and people were already having these conversations about how to use it to identify themselves. Yeah. And now yeah. it's got like this, like, that's, that's a root. It's like, we're going to use it to identify ourselves and you don't have to ask why, like go back and look as to why they did it. That's my answer. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's, I, I, I think that's it. It's, it, I, I like that, that it's like, mm-hmm. it has to do with how people kind of create their own identity and Cumbia becomes a really open platform for, for doing that. However people do it. Um, so yeah, um, I want, I'm happy to continue being a participant in how this, how this story unfolds. Absolutely. Yeah. I was just about to mention that, that, that regardless of how you, uh, you're not like currently like quote unquote researching it. I think from the conversations we've had, I, I would feel safe to say that now, now you're just living it. Yeah. You're experiencing <laughs> it from the inside. <laughs> That's why I'm here this weekend. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you again for joining us. Thank you, Kiko, who came yeah. in, uh, hung out with us, dropped some knowledge bombs. Thank you, guys. Um, and now uh, in traditional form, here, I'll hold that for you. We're going to serenade you out. Radio Peligrosa, special edition, Juan Camilo, Kiko Villamizad. Hasta la próxima. Como hacia el viejo Saya, me da el rimaña, que nacen taos.